Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Back in uh, 2011, I believe, uh, that the federal conservatives, the Harper government at the time, uh, brought in a, a significant change to our legal system that allowed for, in the case of multiple murderers, consecutive terms of parole eligibility to be imposed. And since then, we have seen that deployed a few times. Coming up on Friday, there are two sentences to be handed down to two now infamous killers, both of which could end up being, either of which or both, could end up being the longest sentence ever imposed by a Canadian court. Now, this is still contentious. There are some who maintain that this change runs counter to Section 12 of the Charter, which deals with cruel, unusual punishment. Uh, But so far, uh, this change has held up in court. Bruce MacArthur, who has pleaded guilty to eight counts of murder in connection uh, with the murders of men from Toronto's gay district, he will be sentenced on Friday. Now, because of the timing of those murders, six of those charges would be eligible for the consecutive provision. So he could get life in prison with up to 150 years of parole eligibility set. Although the Crown is looking for 50. But the Crown is looking for 150 years to be the parole eligibility for Alexander Bissonnette, who murdered uh, six worshippers in a Quebec City mosque two years ago. He will also be sentenced on Friday. So why is it important? I think we can safely say that multiple murderers are never going to be paroled. But does it send a powerful message? Now, joining us for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Scott Newark. He's an adjunct professor in the TRSS program, that's Terrorism Risk Security Studies, at the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, a former Alberta Crown prosecutor, former security policy advisor to the Canadian government. He's also a frequent author for the McDonald Laurier Institute. Scott, great to have you back with us. You're welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Uh, so we look at these two cases, and we're going to learn the sentence for both individuals uh, coming up on Friday. Uh, what do you make of this change that was brought in in 2011? How, how important, how significant is it in your view? I think it's uh, quite uh, significant and uh, quite uh, appropriate uh, as well, too. I was involved after I had uh, left being a prosecutor in, uh, in Alberta in 1992. I was the executive officer of the Canadian Police Association, and we had pushed for this for a very long time. Um, I first realized essentially uh, uh, the reality of the system. Uh, back, uh, we were helping uh, victims groups. It was uh, Sharon and Gary Rosenfeld, whose son was abducted and murdered by Clifford Olson. And uh, we actually uh, helped them. And att- I actually attended several of Olson's uh, parole hearings. And I wasn't aware of it really at the time. But in those days, of course, uh, you know, there was the maximum was uh, life uh, imprisonment no parole, 25 years. And it was actually the lawyers and the criminals referred to the multiple murders, the other people who were the victims, they actually referred to them as freebies. Okay? Uh And it had a real impact on victims who felt that there was no acknowledgement of the harm that was actually done to them, that the public system, the sentencing system, was not recognizing that in the sense of the uh, the way a sentence was actually imposed. And I saw another aspect of it as well, too, that was, was really uh, uh, quite alarming. Guys like Clifford Olson, he knew, he, as you mentioned, he knew he wasn't getting out. Mm-hmm. But you know what? He was allowed to reapply every two years, and he used that psychopath that he was to torment 
the victim's families because they always wanted to be there, of course, at any chance that he got it. And he deliberately did that. And so allowing for um, what most people, uh, I think, supported, and, and a lot of people didn't realize, of course, that that was not the case, allowing for that consecutive parole and eligibility accomplished both of those goals, that, number one, uh, it gave that sense of increased recognition of the, you know, the denunciation and deterrence principles of sentencing for multiple murderers, and it also stopped the ability of these uh, multiple murderers, or reduced the ability of them to uh, actually, uh, in effect, uh, torment their uh, their victims. So I think it was an extremely positive accomplishment. It restored some real public confidence in the justice system, especially because the way things were, if you were convicted of first-degree murder, Rob, you got life Theoretically, it was life, no parole, 25 years. Mm -hmm. Except, this is Canada, so in, back in the old days, what that meant was you could apply for the Fain Hope Clause after 15 years. That's right. And pursuant to Section 746 of the Criminal Code, the clock started running on your time from the point that you were taken into custody and arrest. So I dealt with many, many uh, victims, families, that they felt absolutely betrayed by their justice system that, in effect, was saying one thing and doing another. So things that reduce that kind of, uh, you know, as I say, say one thing, do another uh, feature, and that actually emphasize the principles of deterrence and denunciation in these very specialized kinds of cases, I think makes very good sense. Yeah, and it's an important aspect you mentioned, the, you know, the anguish for the families of going through these parole hearings. We saw that just recently, Paul Bernardo yes. uh, had, had a parole hearing, and, and maybe we know what the outcome's going to be, but just what it puts the families through, just even Absolutely. on that, right? I mean, it's, it's a solid reason for, for making that change. Yes, it is, and I think what they could also do is one of the other recommendations that we made at the time was, right now that the uh, the killers are entitled to have their once they reach that eligibility point, even if they're turned down, they are allowed to have another review every two years. My suggestion would be actually that the parole board should have the discretion to say, uh, by the way, uh, no, we're not granting you parole, and you're not able to apply for another ten years. We've had two decisions so far. Maybe the Supreme Court will eventually have something to say on this. Yes. 2015 uh, and then just this past uh, November, uh, two judges upholding this change. Uh, the most recent judge uh, said, quote, such offenses cause greater harm with greater moral culpability than cases involving but a single murder and therefore are often deserving of greater punishment. So what do you make of these uh, Section 12 charter arguments against this change? Well, first of all, you need to appreciate that the defense counsel will argue anything at any time. I believe you're about to see a demonstration of that in Alberta with uh, Omar Khadr going back to court. Yeah. That's a, this, something for a, a different discussion, however. But fundamentally, uh, people may not appreciate this, but we have had consecutive sentencing as an option in our justice system you know, from, from the outset. I'll uh, give you an example. This guy, you know, the, uh, the Humboldt... Uh, uh, bus crash, this guy, Sidhu, who's uh, pled guilty to the uh, 29 charges, yeah. right, and he's being sentenced for some reason. The judges, you know, needed uh, seven weeks to adjourn, but that person has, um, I think it's 16 counts of uh, dangerous driving causing death and 13 counts of dangerous driving causing bodily harm, um, with uh, maximum sentences of 14 and 10 years, respectively. That person, under our current system, 
could receive consecutive sentences on all of those for a total of 354 years. Now, that's not going to happen, but the point of it is is that consecutive sentencing has been a part of our justice system from the get-go, and all that this change really did was deal with a specific kind of an offense um, and address that notion that uh, you were the, the, the system that was in place was not properly serving public interest in that it didn't deal with things like uh, the multiple, multiple murders, the denunciation, the deterrence of that, and as well on uh, protecting victim interest properly. So, uh, don't, of course, it's going to be argued. And as long as I think, you know, the applications that we've seen in the cases so far as you mentioned have been, I think, you know, quite reasonable. Um, and I suspect uh, with uh, MacArthur, uh, it's, it's, it, don't be surprised if it is the, uh, the 50 years. Uh, and as long as... And one of the things the court will consider, I suspect, in deciding this, it'll probably be in the Bissonnette case. In MacArthur, for example, these were separate events, you know, clearly, uh, carefully planned that happened over years, whereas in Bissonnette's case, it's a single event. He goes into a location and shoots up people. Still a lot of, you know, uh, victims, I believe six mm -hmm. uh, homicides, but it was one single event as opposed to multiple events done over uh, multiple years. That's probably something that will be taken into account. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, age is, is a factor. Uh, Bruce MacArthur is in his late yes. 60s. I mean, it's it's therefore much more likely he, he will die in prison, even if parole eligibility is set at 25 years. Alexander Bissonnette is much younger. How much does that factor in? Oh, so, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, they're going to, uh, to look at it in our system, um, you know, is a uh, rehabilitation-focused system, although... You know, with these kinds of high-profile cases, um, that has less of an influence on the sentencing than denunciation and deterrence. Sentencing in uh, in our justice system, I've always... It's why one of the reasons I'm not really a big fan of mandatory minimum sentences, because I think the genius of our justice system is this offender, this offense, and it's a balancing of interest that takes place. One of the factors, however, that is relevant, and appropriately so, is the nature of the offense that's actually involved. So if you're talking about somebody who's a multiple murderer, the denunciation and deterrence, those become the, uh, the much higher uh, principles, as is reflected in the legislation, including with the change that, uh, that you mentioned that's now in place. So we could hear, potentially, on Friday, either or maybe even both of the judges uh, pronounce a sentence of life in prison with no chance of parole for 150 years. Now, obviously, uh, nobody is going to live that long, let alone anybody yeah. into adulthood. But that would be pretty powerful to hear a judge say that, wouldn't it? Yes. Um, I, I must admit, um, you know, uh, with, as you say, with a guy like MacArthur, uh, I guess it would. And I think some of the victims have actually said this, that they'd like to see that as an expression of, you know, validation and recognition of the loss. Um, and with Bissonnette, uh, you know, it's it was such a politicized uh, case because it was ideologically motivated mm -hmm. so that it, it, one could make the argument that that is, you know, in effect a reinforcement of a societal principle and therefore deserves that. Um, I personally doubt that that's going to be the case in either the, of the cases. I think that will be uh, obviously light, but I, I, I believe that it will be more than the 25 years, but probably not the full uh, 150. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I, I think the Crown, in, in MacArthur's case, had suggested 50, but yes, the Crown, in, in Bissonnette's case, did ask for, for the full, the 150, but, yes. uh, now, as I, you say. As I say, I mean, it's uh, obviously a horrific attack that uh, took place, but, 
Um, there has also been, you know, significant attention uh, paid to the, uh, you know, social issues involved in that. And so the Crown is, is clearly stressing the denunciatory uh, principle of sentencing uh, against this uh, guy. But as a matter of, you know, simple um, evidence, I think, uh, I don't know whether or not uh, counsel has made the argument, but it is, you know, factual, as I said, that uh, MacArthur, this is somebody who, you know, planned this um, over years, carried out uh, multiple separate uh, uh, attacks and murders, as opposed to a single incident that the individual Bissonnette uh, 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 did. So that's at least a relevant factor to consider. It's not necessarily uh, uh, determinative in any sense. Uh, and it's certainly, I think the discretion that the judge in that case has been given by the, this new section is something that will be imposed. It'll be a re- really, it'll be a question of, uh, in effect, how long the sentence or the parole ineligibility will be. Yeah, and the judge will make the decision. How much does it matter then, you know, the, the recommendation from the Crown and the defense? If, if the judge ultimately decides, the judge knows the range, the judge knows what's available, knows the case, how much do those recommendations matter? Well, trying not to be too cynical, but it depends on the judge. Yeah. Um, it, you know, that's why we have this adversarial system, and it's why counsel want to try to make as effective arguments as they can because if for example the crown stresses the importance of you know denunciation and deterrence the principles that are involved here in sentencing and the judge doesn't reference that in the decision that gives the crown greater strength than any appeal that might be brought the same thing works in converse as well too unfortunately i think that is why we're seeing such uh, increased delays i mean in my day uh, you know, the maximum you'd see a judge adjourn a, a case to deliver sentencing was usually a couple of hours or maybe the next day. Uh, that's no longer the case, and in part, I think it's because of the recognition of the increased scrutiny that's going to be uh, taking place, and judges don't want to be seen as having made some kind of error uh, that might be uh, viewed as a, a negative. Yeah. And let me just ask you as well, because in, in the MacArthur case, the sentencing hearing, also the Jaskarit Singh Sadhu uh, sentencing hearing, we heard some pretty powerful uh, victims' impact statements, yeah. and that's become such a crucial part of these hearings. Uh, do, do those do those have an impact? Do those matter, uh, you know, in terms of what the judge ends up doing? Um, yes, I think so. Uh, and it's important as well, too, not... Uh, just uh, that's not the only metric of um, legitimacy for victim impact statements it also is a recognition of the fact that victims should have a voice not a veto but a voice and um, as I say as a prosecutor uh, I was involved uh, you know in actually uh, uh, working uh, with victims and back in those days there were no such laws I remember after the law came in a victim asked me one time you know, do you think, uh, do I need to make a, um, a victim impact statement? And I paused for a second and looked at him and I said, well, actually, if I'm doing my job, no, you don't. But you're free to do so. Uh, and it's that, sometimes people don't appreciate that, that the it's a recognition and sign of respect from the public justice system to crime victims that they be given a voice in it, in decisions that are being made. As I say, it's not a veto but it's a voice, and it's when you... And look, there's been so many cases recently, hasn't there? I mean, think of the, uh, the Terry uh, Lynn McClintock case mm-hmm. where victims' voices are denied, where the aspects of the justice system are making decisions. In those cases, you know, the uh, Correctional Services of Canada, the parole boards. And, and that voice for victims as well, too, in my experience, serves as a pretty powerful accountability mechanism. 
because there's a recognition by the different players in the justice system uh, that somebody here is watching what they're doing and expressing uh, their view on things, and it's something that means that it can't, you know, the concerns that are raised simply can't be dismissed. So it's it's an important part of our system, I think. But again, I stress that point: it's a voice, not a veto. Scott, we'll leave it there. Great insight as always. Thanks so much for joining us Good here job, today. Rob. Appreciate it. Take care, Bye-bye. Scott Newark, uh, assistant, uh, rather adjunct professor at the School of Criminology, Simon Fraser University, former Crown Prosecutor here in Alberta, also former Vice Chair of the Ontario Office for the Victims uh, of Crime, former Security Policy Advisor to the Federal Government. So appreciate his thoughts on all of this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at twelve thirty on News Talk seven seventy Calgary.